Please take your Bibles with me as we turn in the scriptures to the book of Jude this evening. Let's turn together to the book of Jude as we continue our study of God's Word. And just before we, we begin that, I want to just remind our church family, in case some of you were out serving the Lord this morning in other areas, had a conversation or two where that was the case, and some questions about uh, next Sunday evening. So just a reminder that we are uh, having our church-wide fellowship uh, next Sunday evening at uh, the Lewis Portwood Farm, and we're looking forward to that. Uh, 5, 5 p.m. we'll be gathering together, and so be sure to look in the bulletin for more details there. But as the, the, the usual case is, we, we ask our our people to bring side dishes and desserts and everything else will be covered and provided for. If you're visiting with us and not officially a member of the church, we just want you to know you're welcome uh, to join us and to be a part of that. And we're looking forward to that time of fellowship uh, together. Turn with me to the book of Jude as we continue our study of looking at Jude's epistle. This is a general epistle that is written to the church at large. And of course, because it is Inspired by the Holy Spirit is written for us today. You could say, excuse me, it is an epistle for all time. It is a general epistle. So let's direct our attention to verses 3 and 4 um, as we look at our core text this evening. Actually, let's begin in verse 1 there. We'll read down through verse 4. The Word of God reads, Jude, a bondservant or a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, writing to those who are called sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Well, for certain men have crept in unnoticed within the assembly, within the fellowship, within the body of Christ. These men who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. These are ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness or licentiousness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the word of the Lord. So we look into this epistle of Jude. I want us to notice, first of all, this evening, again, the theme, number one, the call that Jude is responding to. He is being led by the Holy Spirit of God. We see here in this passage that Jude's direction, his call is from the Lord. When God moved upon human penmen to write the words of Scripture, he superintended it. God wanted his word to be revealed to his people. And we see that divine mystery of God moving by the Holy Spirit upon human penmen, much like a, a wind force, if you will, moves upon the sails of a ship, just to give an example. That wind force is moving the ship, and yet the ship is moving in a particular direction. God and His sovereignty, and we see the tension of God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility, uses the unique individual personalities of these human penmen to write the words of Scripture for us. So, for example, when you look at uh, Paul's writings, Paul has a certain personality, but Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When you see the epistles of Peter, Peter certainly is different than Paul. In fact, Peter says Paul sometimes is hard to understand, or Paul is wordy, if you remember. And so we see Peter's personality coming through there, but yet under the direction and, and control of the Holy Spirit. The same thing here for Jude. And what is revealed here is that Jude wants to remind the people that, that there is God's love for them. Beginning here in verse 3, Jude understands and echoes God's love for his people and how he treats the people of God. Notice what he calls them. He calls them, beginning there in verse 3, beloved. In fact, three times in this first verse of verse 3, he uses the word you, speaking in a personal way to them, beloved. And he addresses them directly in his admonition. In letting them know, he's directly talking to them, to the church, or to the called. So as we think about this being a general epistle, this is to the church. This is to Grace Church. This is to the body of Christ. And the work that Jude will call us to is the work of, of every believer and every member. Yes, it is the work specifically of a pastor, teacher, elder, no doubt about it, to, to rightly divide the word of truth. Ephesians 4.12 reminds us that, the pastor, elder, teacher is to equip the saints, the body of Christ, 
for the building up of the body of Christ, for the work of, men, of the ministry. And so as we think about what Jude is going to instruct the church to do here, this is not just for the, listen here, the professionals, quote-unquote. By the way, uh, I am not a professional. I'll just go ahead and tell you that. You know that. You don't need me to tell you that. But in our mindset, sometimes we can think, well, this is for somebody else. And when we think about contending for the faith. Now listen, this is to the body. This is to those who are called. So we see that, again, we pick up here tonight, number one, the call that Jude is, is responding to from the direction of the Holy Spirit. And that points us back to last time. If you look at verse 2, how we gave emphasis as we talk about how Jude reminds his audience of who they are. Beginning there in verse 1, he says, To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. And we pointed out and drew out this Trinitarian understanding of salvation. We talked about the role of the Holy Spirit and God the Father. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings about the new birth. He, he gives that call that moves beyond the general call to the saving call, that clear gospel revealing call, you could say. The Holy Spirit is the one who does that calling, according to John 3, when he brings about the new birth. And then we see he says, secondly, as you think about who you are, you are the bride of Christ. You are the called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. So we gave much time to the distinction between the general call, like the gospel preaching call. We looked at how Jesus said how many are called, but few are chosen. And we see that there's a call upon the life of the believer. We're called for his purpose, according to Romans 8.28. Paul in Romans chapter 12 reminds us that we're called to spiritual daily sacrifice, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice before the Lord. So Jude knows his audience, and he's calling to them, and he's following the calling himself of the Holy Spirit. Now, as he writes verse 3, he understands who they are. They are the beloved. When we understand this word beloved, it reminds us of who the church of God is in relation not to its pastor or to its apostle, but who they are in connection to their husband, if you will. The church is the bride of Christ. And this is the beloved of Christ. Pastors and shepherds are simply stewards, you could say, of the body of Christ. Under shepherds, uh, in the watch care of the body of Christ or the bride of Christ, you could say in the absence of God the Father. Not that God is really gone, but we are on assignment. God has appointed us to this task. As, Paul, as Jude writes to the church and calls them beloved, it brings up Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, where if you'll remember in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where Paul is writing to the Ephesian elders, he uses this same language as well. Where Paul admonishes the elders of the church at Ephesus, he says, Therefore, brothers, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit, notice here, has made you overseers. So Jude understands who he is. He's a slave of Christ, writing to the beloved of Christ. He understands that he is an overseer to shepherd the church of God. Now notice here, something we remind ourselves of often here is the leadership at Grace, which he has purchased with his own blood. So Paul, again, reminds the elders at the church at Ephesus of who they are, who God is, and who the bride of Christ is. And if you'll follow, if you're in that passage, if not, I'll read it to you. Verse 29, Paul also gives the warning to beware because he says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul's comparison of this is the same as Jude, because he says, Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after themselves. Well, Jude's going to get there. He's going to talk about men of licentiousness who will grow up within the church, those who are, have no fear of God, no fear of Christ, and seek to pervert the gospel of God. So as we go back to verse 3 of the book of Jude, Jude understands his audience. He understands who they are to God, and he understands why they are to be cared for. It's a reminder to us that God's children, God's bride, is to be cared for with the truth of Scripture. And you say, well, why do you say that? Because the truth of Scripture is the very point of precision that false teachers will seek to pervert. That is the very place where false teachers will come in and desire to lead away the, the bride of Christ or the local church. We see this all throughout Scripture, for example. When you look in the Old Testament, many of God's people do not realize this. 
Yet this is the warning of Old Testament. This is the warning of God to his people. When you look into the Old Testament, we're constantly seeing this cycle of the children of Israel desiring to be led away by a siren song, if you will. They are God's chosen people. But what is the process? What is the cycle? Their hearts are continually being drawn away from the true God of Israel towards the false gods of the Canaanites or the surrounding nations. Time and time again, we say, why, why is that? Why is that the case? But yet, as the, as the hymnist writes, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We see that time and time again where God chastens his people because they are wandering away from him. Here we see again in the Old Testament, we can see an example of their hearts desiring a physical king, rejecting the kingship of God their father. Now Jude here is a godly pastor, elder, apostle, of course, as he's writing to the church, knowing exactly the exhortation and the edification that the beloved of Christ need, what they need. And so he is fulfilling that calling. He's fulfilling the calling by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, he tells Timothy, he says, I write to you, Timothy, so that you and the church may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Now notice here, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground or deposit, the support of the truth. Listen, church, we are the... We are entrusted with the truth of Scripture, with the canon of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So sound teaching involves pure teaching in the spiritual realm, but also pure living, as Jude will call out in just a moment, in the physical realm, from the church and from those who lead the church. This is what Jude is exactly about to call out. He knows that when Satan attacks a church, he does it through the two key things of this, impure teaching and impure living. And Jude here, by calling his audience the beloved of Christ, is reminding them of who they are. He continues this, this reminder, moving in from verses 2 all the way into verse 3. You are the called, sanctified, preserved. You are the beloved in Christ. Friends, it's a reminder to us that as we gather, sometimes kids will ask the question, why do we do what we do? Why, do, why does someone open a book and why do we recite scripture? Why do we read scripture? Why does someone preach from scripture? This is what we're called to do as the church, reminding ourselves that this is the point of the spear that converts the soul. The word of God is that means which grows us in Christ, it grows us in faith and in grace and the knowledge Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so this very truth that does this in, uh, in this, inside us is something that we are called to contend for. Now, that's that dreaded C word, contend. That sounds a lot like, like strife. That sounds a lot like fighting. If most of us are honest, we try to stay away from confrontation. If you love confrontation, you got issues. If you are someone who delights in it, then again, I'll say it again, you have issues. If you delight in having that type of weight and stress upon you, then yeah, that tells, tells a lot about you. In fact, it is required in an elder that he not be a brawler, that he not be someone who delights in that type of thing. But at the same time, part of being a pastor, teacher, elder, and part of being moving it from here to here, a part of the body of Christ, the beloved, is that we can and desire to and are willing to contend for the faith. Now, we'll get to that C word in just a moment, that idea of contending. But I want to just go ahead and remind us we do it because we love the truth. We love God. We have our eyes not fixed on the issue or whatever that is, or false doctrine or false teaching or a false teacher who is uh, leading the sheep astray. We don't do it because we delight in that, but we do it because we love God. We're constrained by the love of Christ. We love the people of God. Number one, the call. Secondly, we see the constraint here in verse 3 that Jude tells us that he is under. So while apostasy is the main theme of this short little book, it is not where Jude begins. Jude's desire, as we have pointed out before, was to write of salvation, the doctrine of salvation. 
Don't you love the doctrine of salvation, friends? It, the multi, multifaceted, multi-orbed understanding, the order of salvation, the ordo salutis of salvation. To rehearse it, to know it, to recall it in our own lives. And this is what Jude would rather talk about. And this is what he began to do. But again, going back to that leading of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit had other designs for him. Jude writes here that his desire was to write about the common salvation that he had with this local church or these believers. This word common is not in the sense of mundane, lest you hear that and think he's belittling or putting down salvation. It's not what it means. He means the mutually shared faith of me and you. That's what he's saying to the church. This faith is the one that begins with the person and work of Christ. John 14, verse 6, reminder says to us, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by me. But here's a note on this. That's exactly what false teachers tried to not do. They, 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 want to, they don't want to come through the door that is Christ. Where do wolves come in at? Wolves try to come in through a side angle, through a side door. They try to sneak in. They don't come into the full presence of, quote, the shepherd. Wolves seek to sneak in in some other way. But this common faith that is mutually held is a reminder of Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven whereby, among, no other name among men whereby we must be saved. So this is the common salvation that we have. But Jude says in verse 3, I was constrained. I found it necessary, even though I wanted to write about the common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you. Jude is a model pastor here. Jude is fulfilling what Paul told Timothy the church needs and must have to be shepherded and to grow, to exhort, reprove, rebuke by the means of Scripture, by the Word of God, in love, we would say, by the way. So we see here this constraint. You desired to write a dissertation on the glories of salvation. One's mind could go to Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 11. Something that would compare with like what the Apostle Paul unfolded and what he wrote. Or maybe what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. I have no doubt from what we get a taste of Jude pointing to the per perseverance of the saints. The, the power of Christ to hold his children and to bring them home. We get a taste there in verses 24 and 25, for example. What Jude wanted to talk about, it's almost as if he sneaks it in there at the closing benediction. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his throne of grace with exceeding joy. Don't you want to get more of that? The way the book of Jude ends, it's like, Jude, keep going, man. Like, all right, hey, all right, you've told us what you need to tell us. Now go back to that doctrine of salvation that, that you are wanting to unpack for us. But again, of course, he is following the leading of the Holy Spirit. So Jude's original aim was to write a letter of encouragement, and yet he is led, or the word literally means compressed. So in other words, while he's actively writing this letter, there was a weight the idea is of necessity laid upon him, an impression uh, to go in a different direction. Now, Jesus told his disciples this is exactly the work of the Holy Spirit. So sometimes someone, you may be hearing me, you say, what is the, how do I know, how do we know what is the work of the Holy Spirit like when he impressed this upon Jude? And how do we know what is the leading of the Holy Spirit in general? That, that's a great question. And that opens up a whole can of worms for sure. But remember what Jesus told his disciples in John 16 when when he was preparing them for his absence, his going to the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. And he wanted them to know that they would not be left alone, but a comforter would be sent to them. In John 16, verse 13, remember, he said, However, the Spirit of truth has come, and he, notice here, will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will tell you the things to come. We see here an example of the Holy Spirit leading the penman Jude to write these words of Scripture, to change his direction and to write this general epistle for our learning and admonition and edification. Now, this is the theme in the early church, just by the way. Regularly, Paul would say, particularly say to the church at Rome, I, I wanted to come to you. I've been wanting to come to you for years. What did Paul say? But he said, the Holy Spirit did not allow me to. What does that mean? What does it mean to say the Holy Spirit has kept me from doing this? 
Well, a lot of things are attributed to the Holy Spirit today, no doubt about it. We, we understand that. But here's the thing we know for sure, is particularly in this age of grace, as we had the revealed canon of Scripture, is there's always the plumb line of truth. Is this in accordance to truth? You can say it like this. The Holy Spirit will never lead you to do something opposite of what the Word of God says. The Holy Spirit, remember John 16, verse 13, when He comes, He is, what is He? He is the Spirit of truth. He will lead you into the truth. He will convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Another example of this in the early church as we see the Holy Spirit moving and working is in Acts 16, verse 7. I want you to notice two key phrases or hear them that Paul lets it be, or excuse me, Luke makes it be very clear that the Holy Spirit was at work among them. This is the Macedonian call that they received. Verse 6 of Acts 16. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and Galatia, notice here, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now, that is an odd sentence. Okay? Just like it's odd to think, wait, Jude wanted to write about salvation, but yet the Holy Spirit took him another direction? Well, listen, God's ways are not our ways. And God is in charge. He is the superintendent of his gospel. He is the superintending power behind his word preached. He, his purposes will be performed and accomplished. Now, don't read too much into that. The Holy Spirit has a specific design. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Verse 7, after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia. These are some interesting cities and towns there in Greece. But the Spirit did not permit them. Second phrase, we are told the Holy Spirit was saying no. So instead, a vision appeared to Paul at night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with them, saying, Come to Macedonia. Come over and help us. Literally bring the gospel to us. Now after he had seen that vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding, note here, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Obviously, this is establishing the New Testament church. There's unusual things that are happening. And obviously, today, we're under the, the gospel proclamation ministry. So let's just make those kind of things clear. My point here is to show us how this was a common thing. And it's a common thing in one sense in our lives today. In the establishing of the, Holy, of the early church, the Holy Spirit was leading, starting, and stopping, withholding, restraining, giving permission, and all of those things uh, to the apostles and to the early church pastors, elders, and teachers. And that is what Jude highlights and touches on here. Do you ever feel the Holy Spirit constraining you? Now, what do we mean by that? We say feel. Well, we work in the sense of God's truth leads us in all truth, of course, but we understand that we're called to speak a word of truth to those who need it. We understand that God orders and directs and ordains our steps. And then at the same time, as we understand that we're under the Great Commission mandate, and sometimes we seek to do that, but then there are starts and stops to everything. There are providential hindrances, we could say. Uh, planes get canceled or appointments happen. Charity and I were talking yesterday just about something in general, just reflecting on our lives, and we're talking about it's amazing that anything ever happens ever, that any, you can ever get two people in the same room ever. Just think about all the variables. You try to have a meeting or a staff meeting or a birthday party or a family get-together, and all of our calendars are filled with those types of things. But just because of sickness and variables and all the things in life, we could call those the providential ordained ordinances or hindrances of the Lord. Okay, and I'm, I know I'm speaking very generally. But even today, the Lord works in our life, and so we're to simply accept them with simple faith. We're not to read into them. We're not to ascribe more than what need is, needs to get ascribed to them. But the Bible says in Psalm 37, the steps of a good man, and we could insert there, and the stops, the hindrances, our steps are ordered by the Lord. So whatever that means, even in today, as we have the commission of the gospel that we're called to fulfill and to preach and to go, at the same time, we feel senses, for lack of better words. We're not to put too much stock into them because they're simply that. They're, they're just feelings or whatever. But I have been in conversations where I've, I have shared the gospel. I'm giving truth with someone. And for lack of better words, there's a sense that just says, enough. Don't keep casting your pearls before swine. Now, that's just a biblical phrase. I'm not calling them that. It's, there's an idea here you can sense because of your incul the inculcation of the word, the word of God being within you, as you're counseling or guiding or teaching the truth, 
Sometimes the Holy Spirit using the truth of Scripture gives confirmation or liberty or the lack thereof. And uh, it's just hard to explain sometimes when you're dealing soul work or personal work. Uh, but we feel these things even in our everyday lives. And I want to be careful. I'm not saying it like I want to because I'm not trying to put too much stock into feelings. But we experience these things in our everyday living, in our conversations, in our counseling with others. So coming back to the book of Jude, Jude lets us know that he was constrained by the Holy Spirit. This is, and he lets them know, verse 3, he says, um, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend, an action item here, to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So what is it that Jude is calling the church to contend for? Let's take just a moment to look at this phrase, this sense of duty uh, regarding the faith. How do we contend the faith? Regularly we hear uh, the calls to arise. Oh, church, arise. You know, we sing songs like that. We understand that in these last days there's an impetus, there is a need for men and women to have backbone and to be strong and to, to be faithful, to hold to the pure gospel of grace. As we think about being compelled, led of the Holy Spirit of God to contend, what are we referring to? Is it the gospel message? What is it? Well, Jude tells us. He says regarding the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. This is, certainly includes the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection message of Christ. This is the whole of the faith, the full canon of Scripture, the, the whole body, you could say, of objective truth. Again, remember, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. That, that means something. The body of Christ has had, we've had handed over to us the, the body of truth. It's been passed down to us as we've been looking on Sunday mornings about the apostles' doctrine, the process of discipleship. The early church, the book of Acts tells us, met regularly for the breaking of bread, for fellowship and prayers, and for attendance to the, te the apostles' doctrine, which was the teaching of Scripture. This has been given to us, friends, for our care for our stewardship. You could say that we have received a deposit of the truth for which we are responsible. This is key as we think about the tone of this text, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Here's the idea. The tenor of the Greek here is that this is a deposit that's already been transacted. It has been once for all time. The word, I think it's hapax, hapax, speaks of something that has already been accomplished and will not be repeated. So in other words, we have all that we need for life and godliness in the Word of God. When you hold the Scriptures in your hand this evening, you have exactly what God wants for you to have for life and salvation and sanctification, for the fulfilling of God's will for your life, to know what He has for you and for your family. When Proverbs chapter 3 says, don't lean into your own wisdom or your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. That's what we have in God's Word. Light. His Word is a light to our path. His Word is a lamp to our soul. It illuminates and shows us the perfect will of God for our life. And so the question that we could ask is, is do we take the Word of God or this faith it's once for all delivered to the saints. Do we take it seriously? Do we take God's word seriously? You could say it like this. If this is God's word and if this is the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints, do we contend for it? Do we know it? Before we can even contend or defend it, you could say, we certainly need to have it within us. We need to meditate upon it. We need to memorize it. And then we can stand for the word of truth. Because that is exactly what Jude is calling for. He's calling for a church that has backbone. He's calling for a church that has conviction. This is what is required. Now Jude knows that we don't like confrontation. Wolves also know that as well. Wolves know that it's easier for people just to go the path of least resistance than to have the courage to stand for the truth of Scripture or the truth of the gospel. And so that's why we're called to contend for the faith. 
Again, I just want to make a point here that this is not just for me. This is for all the believers in the body of Christ. So number one, we've seen the call. Number two, we've seen the constraint. And then lastly here, number three, Jude wants us to know the confidence that we have going into this fight. And before we look at that, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 11. If you will, turn with me over to Romans chapter 11. And let's just remind ourselves of what Jude is doing as well. Paul gives us this reminder that in the love of Christ, he's already given us that golden chain of salvation in Romans chapter 8. But in Romans chapter 11, give me one second, I've lost my place here. Excuse me, it's Romans chapter 8, not 11, excuse me, Romans chapter 8. Right after the golden chain of salvation that, that we call it in Romans verse 28 down through verse 36, talking about that we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, and that's where he gets into those links of the chain of salvation or the order of salvation. He can, Paul concludes there in verse 37. Now notice this language, and have this language in your mind going back to Jude. He says this, Yet in all these things, we, who's we? We are the church, we are the beloved. He says this, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, speaking of Christ. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing, any type of creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the security of the believer in the grace of of God, in our salvation in God. And church, this is the security that I have. This is the security that you have according to this common faith of the power and the gospel of Christ. Now, this is exactly the confidence that Jude is trying to instill within the believers here. When we think about contending, how can we contend? Well, we can contend because our eyes are fixed upon the author and the finisher of our salvation, the captain. Scripture says, of our salvation. So we look at the whole of Jude as we think about having that confidence that we need to contend for the faith. We know the security that we have as God's people. We pointed to that in verses 2 and 3. Jude also points us in verses 24 and 25 to know the faithfulness that God will secure us and bring us ultimately home. There we see the closing benediction of God who is our Savior, who is able to present us faultless before the throne of grace. Verses 3 to 23, we see in different passages sprinkled throughout this text that God has chosen us as his vessels to do this work that he has called us to do. This is the confidence that we have. This is the confidence that we have to follow what Paul says, to stand, to not retreat. But see, here's the thing, that's exactly what we want to do. We need the confidence not to not, to not retreat, we just need the confidence to stand initially. Many of us, we're struggling just to stand, to be a faithful witness, to, to speak where we need to speak, or to counteract where we need to counteract, or that type of thing where the Lord has us, to share the gospel of Christ, where the Lord has given us opportunity. How do we do this? We have confidence, knowing that we are those secure in Christ. Our minds go throughout church history, thinking about those who have been called upon to be martyred for their faith, those who uh, been called upon to stop preaching their gospel, to cease from preaching the word of God, and if they don't, they will be in prison, or they will lose their lives, if you get the idea. What keeps those saints of yesteryear from being strong in the Lord and having confidence? Listen, it's knowing the security of their salvation. This is what I like to call dying grace, the confidence that they have in the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, Jay Babin, when he was preaching from 2 Timothy, uh, gave us the closing idea of Timothy's death, quoted from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. When you look at the Fox's Book of Martyrs, it is gruesome death after gruesome death after gruesome death. And as a kid, I remember reading Fox's Book of Martyrs in my early teenage years and just thinking, how on earth did people do this? Why did they do this? 
How did they die with their last breaths, uh, pleading for souls to repent, pleading for those and forgive, asking the Lord for forgiveness of those who were uh, killing them, martyring them, that type of thing? It's this. This is what Jude is talking about, the confidence that we have in the captain of our salvation. Lastly, one other point we want to draw, draw out tonight is number four, the conflict. And we'll come back to the middle part of verse three, this call for contending. The conflict that we are called to as Christians. Again, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for that whole body of faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Verse 4. And here he gives the reason why. He says, For certain men, we don't know their names, but these are individuals who are members in the church. They're a part of this congregation. Certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turned the grace of our Lord into lewdness or excess or licentiousness and deny the only Lord and God, our Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Here Jude gets to the very heart of the conflict. This is the core doctrine that is addressed here in this epistle and it's the doctrine of apostasy. The word apostasy is an unusual word. It's one that we're hearing more and more about, and, but in one sense, it's always been present in the life of the church. Maybe in today's world, we recognize it like this, deconstruction. Maybe when we use that word, we see that even more and more. There are professing Christians who say, I used to be a Christian, but now I am no longer a Christian. In fact, I am deconstructing. In other words, I'm unwiring, I'm unlearning, I'm un offloading what has been given to me? Brother Mike, do you mind to shut that door for me right there? Just so I can have a train of thought there. Um, that door just randomly opens up all the time, just so you know, if you're visiting with us. Um, so deconstruction is a word that we often see is very popular today. That would be a new word for this old sin of apostasy. Now, why are these men, why does it need to be addressed? Well, verse 4 tells us that these men, and the word crept speaks of not actual physically. They have come through the front doors of the church. In fact, I would tell you that, Grace, you should be thankful that we have measures in place to go through our church membership in the way that we have it. It's unusual. We were talking about it this afternoon as we were conducting new member interviews uh, before the service, and we'll do it again here in just a moment after the service. Uh, but I can't, just for the sake of talking to the choir for a second, I can't tell you how unusual that is. In today's world, and for many decades and years, if someone wanted to join the church, all they'd have to do is just simply respond and walk down and say, I want to join the church. And the response in love and well-meaningness, no doubt, was one of, well, well sure, you know, hey, do you know Christ? Yeah, I know Christ. Uh, have, you, have you prayed a prayer? Sure, I prayed a prayer. And well, hey, friend, come on, join. And say, hey, church, we've got, a, we've got a, a family right here that, that wants to join the church. And it sounds like I'm being mocking. I'm not. I'm just trying to, that's, that's how it happens, friends. And some of you are nodding your head, and, and you know that. You see it. That is common. Here's the problem with that. You wake up one day, and you realize your church is full of wolves. You've not even taken the time. It takes longer to get a Sam's membership or a Costco membership than it does to join an average Baptist church in the South today. So here's our point. It's not to necessarily make it difficult to join the church, but a conversation should be had. If somebody's going to come along and, and uh, want to marry your daughter, God forbid, those things happen. But if they want to do it, there's going to be a conversation that happens, right? There's going to be just a, hi, my name is Bob, and what's your name again? There's a basics of getting to know you. This is how it happens within a church. And so I'm not trying to praise our own selves. I'm just trying to remind our church there's a reason why we do the things that we do. We, we have you go through a membership class. Here's what we believe. Here, here is what we teach. And uh, let's work through this. Let's talk through this. Here's an open Bible. And here is our statement of faith. And if we need to resort to the scriptures, we need to go back and forth. That's what we're here to do. At the end of it, you will then have a member's, uh, a member's interview with the elders of the church, and we will, again, want to hear your salvation. We ask you to fill out a form where you put it in writing, and then we work through that. We contact your previous pastor, and we say, hey, uh, we have so-and-so family wanting to join Grace Church here, and uh, we, there's a couple things. Do you have a moment? There's a couple things we'd like to know. Um, so this is the family. This is the name. We just need to know, number one, were they members in good standing at your church, or are they uh, are they wolves? <laughs> you know, are they evade? I'm being funny in one sense, but not so much in the other, you know. 
are, are they evading church discipline? Is there a conflict? Are they simply just moving from church to church to church and yet not dealing with a core issue here? Uh, this is the work of a pastor elder. This is the work of the leadership of your church. And once we go through that, we have an, a member interview there, and then we try to work through that. And then as we come before you, you can know that these previous steps have taken place. And as we observe the Lord's table on one particular Sunday night, we'll say, hey, church, we've got a couple of families here that desire to join our church in membership. And when we do that, you can just take to the bank that these previous steps have all uh, taken place. Now, I will say this. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. It's not perfect because only God ultimately knows the hearts of individuals. People can learn a script. People can memorize terms. People can learn all types of things. We have to take people upon their professions of faith and upon others' recommendations, and that's fine. Then the Lord will help safeguard his church. But I will tell you this, Grace. It is one reason why there is a peace and a unity here that is often not experienced in many churches. And it's because of that. There is a common salvation that we all hold here. We love Christ. We have a passion for him. We want him to get the glory. And so that's just a reminder of how we, the first step of how we go about it, grace, preventing these things. Verse 4 tells us about this conflict. These certain men have crept in unnoticed. And for many churches, it's just simply walking down the aisle saying, I love Jesus. I love the gospel. I'd like to join and, and uh, teach a class. And next thing you know, they're teaching a class. And then you wake up and realize certain men have crept in unawares, but they do not hold to the pure gospel of grace that we hold. It's Jesus plus this, or, or Jesus plus this work, or Jesus plus that work. And all of a sudden, you're pulling your hair out saying, how did we get here? And this is exactly how it happened. Now again, the primary agent of this protection of who is to, to stand on guard against this is the pastor elders, the teachers of the local church. Again, going back to Acts chapter 20, Verse 30, Paul makes it clear that as the leading of the elders, that there from among themselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. And those that are being addressed in Acts chapter 20 are the elders there of the church at Ephesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says this to Timothy, and I always I always think it's so interesting how surprised we are sometimes when these conflicts happen or when they do take place. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit, Paul says, expressly says, like you can take this to the bank, that in the latter times some will depart from the faith. So let's just hit pause there. All right? There, there are always those, as we said, who are apostatizing or apostatizing and deconstructing uh, from the faith. In one sense, listen, don't ever lose hope. Many are those who struggled or had a crisis of faith. Many are those who've had crisis moments of life and they have wandered away from the truth. And I just want to encourage you, if you are related uh, to someone to that, I have friends in that regard that I've played with and knew for years and they're not in the faith by all appearances. They are apostates. They have apostatized from the gospel, the truth, that they have known that some of them have been hurt, some of them have been abused, some of them have had crisis moments of life. And, and you pray through that and you say, God, by your sovereign grace, would you call them again to yourself and restore them and bring about the new birth that they truly don't know you? And would you do that work of grace that only you can do? So my point is this, is when it happens, don't lose your faith. When it happens, don't be shocked. When it happens, because according to what Paul is writing here to Timothy, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen a lot, and it's going to happen in the last days, which we've been in for a couple thousand years now. Okay, so this is us. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared. In other words, that no longer has feeling with a hot iron. Have you ever... Have you ever ironed your shirt in the morning or getting ready for your day and your elbow or something, the tender part of your arm touches that searing part of the iron and all of a sudden you lose all feeling for a day or two. It just burns the snot out of you. That's what he's talking about. It does in our consciences. Having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, beyond or past feeling, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Man, passage after passage, we see these admonitions of saying, Hey, church, be on guard. This will happen. It happened, as we saw this morning, to Jesus. If some should arise among us and depart from the faith, take comfort in the fact that Jesus had Judas. Not that we boast in it or not that we whatever, but sometimes when a, that type of thing happens, it rattles a family. It rattles the family of God, no doubt. Uh, there are authors that I've had to pull their books from my shelves who were very influential in my life. I, they taught me, get this, they taught me things of the Spirit. They taught me the Word of God, and yet they're no longer in the faith. Go figure that out. It makes no sense. And when it happens, just know this, that your security of faith is not in them. Your security is in Christ and Christ alone. I'll never forget the day my dad found out the evangelist that he was born again under that man's preaching apostatized from the faith. He found out way uh, more recently, just a few years ago. Uh, but he was saved at the age of 15, and that rattled him. Not like completely. That was something he had to work through mentally and just say, how does that happen? How could I be saved under someone else, a false goat's preaching? That's where we see, behold, the mystery and power of the Word of God. Your salvation does not come from man. It does not come from a preacher. It does not come from anyone. It comes from God himself. So Paul tells Timothy that in the latter days, this conflict is something that you need to be aware of. You need to be ready for, and it will take place. Now, they are described here as we get ready to kind of conclude for tonight. Go back to Jude, verse 4. Their character is described, these men... What exactly are they tampering with? What exactly is the issue that, that Jude is addressing? Well, here we see that they desire to turn the grace of our God into lewdness and, two things here, deny the only Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. So two things they're doing. The first one is they're encouraging sin for on a simplistic level. They're encouraging sin so that grace may abound. All right? That's what we would call, to give a theological term to it, antinomianism. It's the idea that, that you are saved. There's different versions of this teaching, so I'm not going to get into the weeds tonight. But you are saved, you are justified in Christ, and because of that justification, you are now, in a sense, free to live however. They may not say it quite that way, so I don't want to do a straw man. But the idea is, is that it doesn't matter the, the depth of sin or the lapses of sin. Ultimately, take comfort in the fact that you are justified and there's to be no concern about repentance, you could say. Now, there's truth in there. There's the sense of we cannot lose our salvation. When we come to faith in Christ, we are forensically and legally declared righteous before God. But notice your church, if that is true, if that reality is real, we will bear fruit. As we saw this morning, repentance will be present in our life. We will be those who see our sin. In fact, it is a sign of our salvation is that our relationship because of Christ with sin has changed. Sin was once our treasure, our, as Gollum in the Lord of the Rings would say, my precious. Our sin was just as natural and precious to us as breathing. But because of Christ, then our relationship with sin now changes. We're broken over our sin. When we sin, we get so mad at ourselves that we have, we have let God down and that we have reverted back to our former ways of life or the sins of the flesh. So the signs of justification, that legal declaration of true gospel salvation that has happened in our life, is simply the life of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. And so there's a, there's a balance there. So, friends, I just want to say, if you sense in your own life, and your understanding of doctrine and theology, uh, a disregard for sin, a no big deal about sin, you've missed something big. You've missed the true understanding of the pure gospel of grace. Grace keeps us from wanting to sin. And because of the true gospel of grace, even when we sin, God's grace enables us, notice here, not to sin. Now, as long as we're robed in this body of flesh, we will struggle with sin. Don't hear what I'm not saying. In fact, I would point you to Romans 6 and 7 where Paul says, oh, oh, wretched man that I am. The things I should do, I struggle to do sometimes. And the things that I ought not to do, sometimes I find myself doing them. 
But yet Paul gives no encouragement or exhortation to sin. In fact, he says, if you truly understand the power of grace and the gospel of God, you will understand that sin has lost its power over you because of grace. Now, that's just an aside on this false teaching that these apostles were bringing into the church. So the first thing that we're bringing into this conflict that has to be addressed, that has to be confronted, is the fact that they turn the grace of our God into lewdness or licentiousness. And I just want to tell you something. I have known men in ministry, guys I've gone to school with, or people whose ministries I've followed, who have lost the focus of the centrality of the pure gospel of grace and have moved into this understanding of, you could say, antinomianism, which is sinning so that grace may abound. Listen, some people hold to it to a level that goes like this. If God gets glory in dispensing grace, as we say, His mercy is more. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. That's a truth statement. Some people go so far as to say, I give glory to God even in my sin because He pours out grace upon grace. And they point to the grace as a sense of giving glory to God. They're missing it. Whoa, 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 whoa. If that's how you view it, you need to go back to the heart of the gospel and question whether or not you truly know the gospel and truly know Christ. And so that is a popular teaching. And my point in bringing that up is this. Almost inevitably, those preachers fail morally. They fall into that type of teaching, but they themselves lose their ministries over this understanding that really sanctification doesn't matter anymore. And so, again, we're going down a whole other road. But this is the core false doctrine that is being brought into the church. Then the second thing is they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Do me a favor and turn back with me to 1 John and 3 John. We're going to look at two things in 1 John in closing and then one thing in 3 John. As we see that this is not new. This is beginning to creep into the church. This is beginning to take hold within the church. And as we pointed out last time together, John himself, the reason he begins the epistle of 1 John by describing that which we have heard, which we have seen, using the senses, that which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, in one sense, John, John is addressing the, the false teaching of Gnosticism, of Gnosticism. But in regards to this, as you think about discerning truth from error and that, I want you to look with me, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. And we're just going to try to bring some of these things together by looking at what John is battling in the same way. And John says there, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world, and he's speaking of this world system, the culture, being in love with all that this fallen world system is over against Christ. For all that is in this world, be reminded, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And know this, this world is passing away, and the lust that it has, the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Then he goes into verse 18 by saying, Remember, little children, this is John's language for the church, it is the last hour, or these are the last days. And as you have heard that the Antichrist, or the spirit of Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that this is the last hour. Now notice what he says. They went out from us. This is those who apostatize or deconstruct. They went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. It is, in a sense, God's grace to his church when people who do truly apostatize become known. So that's no longer in secret, but is fully revealed so that the church can properly know who are those who are within, who are those who are without, and how to pray for them. If you have those within your church who are silent and they have deconstructed or are deconstructing or have apostatized, you don't even know to pray for them until maybe it comes out in some sense. But this is a work of God's grace and how these things become revealed. Now look with me in chapter 4. Chapter 4, speaking of the truth the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John 4, 1 John 4 says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this know the spirit of God, 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. And he goes on to continue by giving that understanding of truth and error. One last example I wanted you to, to give to you is turn to 3 John, which if your Bible is like mine, it's in the same uh, page as the beginning of Jude there. Look with me at 3 John chapter 9. Again, Paul, excuse me, John is writing an epistle to a man named Gaius. He addresses him there as the elder. But there is a problem going on in this local assembly that John is writing to. Gaius is a godly man within that assembly. He's known and commended for his faithful generosity to the body of Christ, for loving the truth, for being a fellow helper to the truth. But then he, John transitions from beloved Gaius, who loves the truth, enables the truth, and supports the truth, to someone else who does not do that. And that man's name is Diotrephes. Now notice what he says in verse 9, speaking of those false apostates, those wolves who come up within the local assembly. He says, I wrote to the church. Now, John is speaking of a previous writing, like an epistle, that obviously the Holy Spirit did not secure for the canon of Scripture. He says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. In other words, Diotrephes took care of that letter. He, he does not want me to have influence among the body there. Diotrephes wants to be the voice. Diotrephes loves to have the preeminence. That, that's his description. Verse 10, John says this, Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds. In other words, I will confront him, which he does. And now notice this word that is given to Diotrephes is the same word that is described of Satan. This is the work of Satan. What does he do? Prating. This man prates against us, he says, with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren. He does not love the brethren, and so he does not receive the brethren, and yet forbids those who wish to, putting them even out of the church. Just a note here, that's not church discipline. This is who Diotrephes feels like should even be able to come in the doors. Diotrephes is literally has a lockdown, a chokehold on the front doors of the church. And those who would desire to worship, who are true believers, have to pass by the gate of Diotrephes. So, beloved, do not imitate what is evil, John says, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. And then John reverts, turns to another good example worthy of commendation in Demetrius. Here we just see some examples from just the epistles of John right here that help us to understand what happens in a local assembly. Those things that we have to be on guard against. And grace, listen, is constantly necessary that we ourselves, listen to me, check our own hearts first, as we saw this morning. Our spirit is not first and foremost, I wonder who might be a, a false teacher trying to sneak in the, no, 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 no. The first step for us is to rehearse our own salvation, to be confident in Christ Jesus, to be secure in Christ, to know that we are the called, preserved, sanctified by the Spirit, the kept ones, to be secure in Christ, and then to love His truth, to love His gospel, and to start there. And then as we move beyond there, as we sense things or things begin to happen or a false teacher may come up, I'll never forget in my life, my mind as I was preparing for the message, as a little boy, I was probably Jack's age in my home church, the first time I saw this kind of played out literally in real time in a church was an older man, I was about to say a godly older man, I needed to qualify that, he was not a godly older man, but an older man who was respectable came on the scene quick. Uh, was in the choir, was involved, and just jumped in and was involved in everything. Uh, but this man, man was an example of what Jude warns against. He believed in the abuse of grace, you could say, licentiousness, uh, for the glory of God. And he began to go in one-on-one lunches and conversations with different people within the church, and even on site after a service. You would see him with his Bible open and, and talking. And I thought as a little boy, I remember thinking, oh, sweet mister, and I'm not going to say his name, what a just what a man who loves God's word. As a little boy, not having any discernment, just looking at the image or the profile of it, I remember thinking, just what a sweet, he gave me mint, so that's why I thought he was a sweet old man. Uh, but I saw him with his Bible open, and that's always a sure sign that, that uh, someone is truly uh, in the faith, for sure. But I'll never forget one Sunday night, some men in our church 
confronting him outside, kind of off to the side. And I could hear their voices raised, and I could see them all with Bibles open. And then I heard one of them say something to the effect of, uh, you will not be teaching that at this church any longer. You are welcome to hear the word. He was not a member. He just got kind of involved quick, and it's one of those things that happens sometimes. And it's just a word of exhortation, a word of admonition. I was probably trying to get a mint from him at the moment. That's why I heard it. I don't know. But um, as a kid, I remember seeing that played out and realizing that things are not always what they, what they appear to be. It's a reminder that Paul tells Timothy that Satan at times comes even as an angel of light. So whatever that is, friends, may the Lord protect us and preserve us from it. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for our church, and we thank you for what you're doing here, what you have done here. And Lord, we thank you for how you have protected us through the years. And Father, you get all the glory. You get all the praise. Most importantly, I just want to pray over our congregation Father, that you would give us a passion for the truth. The truth is the most wonderful, the most valuable possession that we have. More than money, more than houses, more than cars, more than influence, more than anything we've got. Father, the truth is our desire. The truth is what satisfies our souls. Lord, would you give us kind of a radar that helps us to understand that uh, when, if this should arise, you tell us it will. Lord, that we would be on guard against apostasy or those who would desire to lead us from the pure gospel of grace. We trust you for all of this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right.